The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I don't know about you, but it's been in my world quite a week this week. It's good to be here in the Lord's house on Sunday to shut aside everything else that's going on and the craziness of life and the world and, and culture and uh, just focus on the Lord. Uh, this morning my son is finishing up a 14-day quarantine since his teacher tested positive for COVID uh, just before Thanksgiving. So he and Danielle are at home live streaming, trying not to expose you to any danger. Although he's been running around like a madman for two weeks, I think he's just thrilled to not have to go to school this past week. But in any case, uh, as safety warrants, that's where they are. Uh, also, this morning, my, uh, I came into a desktop computer that was completely and utterly dead. I uh, took a nap last night and chose not to wake up this morning. So in trying to move my PowerPoint from the Macintosh over to here, something misfired and you just get to look at me this morning. So I'm, I apologize up front to you for that. Uh, but I will post the PowerPoint online on the Facebook page this week. So if you're scrambling, if you'd like to take notes, I'm going to move quickly this morning. Uh, don't worry if you miss a quote or if you miss a point or something. I'm going to post it all for you online and you'll have it. So don't, don't fret over that. Uh, this morning we do begin, though, our, our study of the Gospel of Luke. We have uh, just finished up uh, a study on the first couple of chapters of Revelation a couple of weeks ago, I hope. And trust and pray that you found that productive and helpful and informative and good, and we turn our attention now to a completely different uh, type of New Testament book, a gospel, the Gospel of Luke, and we'll begin with that this morning, just doing an introduction to the gospel. We'll, the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas, sort of uh, take it out of chronological order just a bit uh, for the, the Christmas season, and then what we skip over here early, we'll come back and pick up uh, right after the new year and start making our way through the Gospel of Luke. I don't know that we'll go uh, cover to cover. We'll probably take some breaks along the way. Luke is a, is a long uh, book in the New Testament, so we may take some, some excursions off to the side here and there throughout our journey of Luke. But uh, nonetheless, that's where we'll start this morning, and uh, that's sort of the trajectory that we'll set moving ahead. So this morning, I just want to read to you Luke's prologue in the introduction, and uh, we'll stop with that. Luke writes in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you are good and gracious and mighty. You are sovereign over all history. You have indeed been directing every moment of human history uh, toward the redemption of your people through your son Jesus. And we pray, O oh great God, that as we open up our hearts and our minds to the gospel of Luke and we listen and read the words of a man who was faithful to you to record an orderly account of your son Jesus, that he would come alive to us afresh and anew, that you'd give us fresh vision and fresh insight into our Lord and Savior, that we would see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his majesty, and we would be transformed by the sight. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us and that this study would be both encouraging and challenging, uh, that it would be informative and that it would provoke us, Lord, to greater depths of obedience and service and love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in history, for dying in our place, and we honor you and we gaze upon you this morning. For it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. I wonder if, if you are like me in the sense that at some point in your Christian faith, either past or maybe even present, you've wrestled with doubts. Can anybody, can anybody identify with doubts in regards to your faith? Has there ever been a time where you, know, you, you started evaluating your own heart and your own thoughts and your own life and the things that were happening around you, the things that were happening inside of you, 
and, and begin to evaluate those things through the lens of your faith. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, questions start to pop into your mind and you begin to wonder, are the things that I've been taught really true? Is Jesus who he really said he was? Is the, the Bible really God's word? Is it, is it something that I can truly believe? Is it really true what I read in here? Is God real? Is he truly uh, orchestrating all of, of human history towards a particular end? Are, are, are things all under his control or maybe they're not? When I prayed, is, does, does anyone really hear me? Is Jesus truly God who came in human flesh and walked among us? Maybe you flip through the pages of the Bible and all of a sudden you've come across one of the stories of, of, of a miracle that happened and in the back of your mind you're saying, you know, that seems incredible, but I'm not sure if that really happened. Or maybe you just look at your own self in the mirror at times and you understand what a, what a wretched sinner you are and you begin to wonder in the back of your mind, you know, could God really, would he really forgive my sins? Is, is there something beyond this life? Is heaven real? did a funeral this week for uh, one of our, our faithful folks who passed away. Mr. Marion McAvoy was a, a Navy veteran who served on the USS Wasp in World War II. Not a whole lot of, of those fine uh, gentlemen left. And I, as I stood in front of that group and, and delivered the message at that funeral, you could see the wheels turning in people's minds. And it's in moments like that people begin to wonder, is there something beyond that casket? Is there something beyond that dirt underneath which we're buried. I don't know if it's just me, or maybe you can identify with some of those kinds of doubts. Maybe there have been those seasons in your life and your walk with Christ where doubts have crept into your mind, or maybe there have been seasons when doubt has all but overwhelmed you and consumed you. Well, if that's you this morning, I want you to know you're in good company. You're not alone now, and you're not alone throughout the history of the church. Some great believers in the history of the church have wrestled with doubts like you have. John Calvin said this, he said, Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that's not tinged with doubt or any assurance that's not assailed by some anxiety. C.S. Lewis, the great author and thinker, said this, he said, A Christian with reasonable faith still experiences time when, quote, his emotions rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Has that ever happened to you? Your emotions have arisen and, and, and assaulted uh, your beliefs? Lewis understood that. He said in another place, I, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. He was one who understood doubt. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this. He said, the strong are not always vigorous. The wise are not always ready. The brave not always courageous. And the joyous not always happy. He says, the life of Luther might suffice to give a, a thousand instances. And he was by no means of a weaker sort. His very deathbed was not free from tempests. And he sobbed himself into his last sleep like a great wearied child. Some great people of the faith throughout the history of the church have struggled in various ways with doubts about their faith, just like you do, just like I do. Os Guinness writes a definition of doubt. He says this, he says, doubt is a, a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. It's a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. Faith is a, a wholehearted reception of the truths of the gospel that's presented in the word of God. To use the, 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 the sort of the category of the writer of Hebrews, it's an assurance of things that are not seen. Faith is a, a full embrace of what we can't prove by the senses. On the other end of the spectrum is something called unbelief. It's an outright rejection of the claims of the gospel and the claims of the Bible and the claims of truth that come from Almighty God. Unbelief is a rejection of those things. Faith is a wholehearted belief and embrace of those things. Unbelief is that, that waffling, waffling, sort of wavering, vacillating middle in between those two poles. 
where the meter of our heart tends to swing and move. It's a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. Like Lewis, like Calvin, like Luther, like Spurgeon, we sometimes doubt too. There are times when our faith sometimes falters. There's times when we look at our own story of salvation and it just seems improbable, like it, it's probably not really what we think it is. Maybe we still believe in Jesus, but sometimes we're just not sure. Doubt. If that's you, if in any way, shape, or form you can identify with doubt, then the Gospel of Luke is a gospel for you. It's a gospel that is to be laid at your doorstep to help you with doubt, to give you a, an assurance that what you've embraced and believed about Jesus Christ is indeed true and rational, historic. If you've ever wrestled with doubt, this gospel of Luke's study is going to be helpful to you, I believe, because it was written with that goal in mind. We don't know a whole lot about the author. The author is, is Luke in the book, he doesn't identify himself as the author. He never says, hey, I'm Luke, I wrote the book. So we have to figure out uh, from some deduction who is the author. Um, that is true of Luke, that's true of some other books of the Bible. It's been almost universally accepted throughout the history of the church that the author of this gospel is none other than the man Luke. That's why when you open your Bible, it says at the top, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, there has been some debate in modern days, some who want to come back and sort of argue against that. But historically, it's been pretty much unassailable. There are very few books in the New Testament as clear as far as their authorship uh, as the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the book itself covers in general narrative. It's a narrative sort of genre that covers the life and the ministry of Jesus. So it's different from what we've been studying in the way that it's written and the way that it's laid out. Um, and and it's, it's really the volume one, if you will, in a two-part series written by the same man, Luke. He writes Luke, and then he picks up and writes Acts, and he picks up almost uh, ex exactly where he left off in Luke. So the same man has written both books, and the way we come to that is because there is some internal evidence in the books, and then there's some external evidence that sort of points us in that direction. A couple of things that we see inside the book of Luke and the book of Acts uh, that help us understand these things is, right at the very beginning, they're both dedicated to the same person. In Luke chapter 1, you saw there that Luke wrote, as I read a moment ago, he said, it seems good to me to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. And then in Acts chapter 1, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we have a writing that's identified to the same man in the introduction in both books. And Acts naturally sort of picks right up where Luke ends. And so it seems like a, a continuation of the same story written by the same person to the same person. If you were to study the, gospel, or the book of Acts, you would find as we, as we sort of move through the book of Acts, the author, when he's describing sort of the travels uh, of the apostles and the ministry of the apostles, he uses uh, sort of third-person pronouns, they, a lot. They did this, they went there, they did this, and this happened to them, and so on and so forth. But as we get to about the middle of Acts, everything starts to change, somewhere around chapter 16, and all of a sudden the pronouns switch from thee and them to we and our. And it seems to indicate that whoever's writing at that point picks up with the apostles and continues to travel and do ministry alongside them. So now he's not writing as an outsider describing what others are doing, but he's writing as an insider, one who's along for the journey as well. So it leads us to believe that the author was one who traveled along with the apostle Paul in the book of Acts and the other apostles. Um, we find from those wee passages, without going through them all, that, that the author first joins Paul in a town called Troas, that he's present on Paul's visit to, to Philippi. We find that he accompanies Paul on his journey toward Jerusalem, and he stays in Caesarea at another time with Philip, so it's not Philip. He accompanies Paul to Rome, and he even goes through Paul's shipwreck with him on the way. Um, and even as Paul is imprisoned later in life, the author is is one who is still with Paul at the time. So when we begin to start eliminating names and, and filtering down to who fits all of these sort of criteria, it becomes obvious that Luke is the one 
who's writing these things and who's referring to himself within the we. Another thing that's internal to the book that points us to Luke is the book is, is written by someone who's very well educated and familiar with medical terminology. He uses language that points us in that direction. And in Colossians, Paul refers to Luke as a beloved physician. And so we know that Luke was, for his day, an educated, well-educated man. And so the genre and the style of writing and the vocabulary points us really toward Luke. Uh, if we were to go outside of the book itself and look externally to history, you would find that the unanimous witness of the early church was that Luke was the author of this book. Back as early as 180 to 200 AD, there was a document that's been discovered called the Muratorian Fragment. And uh, in there, it says, uh, uh, it, says that this, it says it's from Rome, and it says, quote, compiled by Luke the physician. Uh, speaking of the book of, of Luke. In uh, somewhere between 130 and 200 AD, the early church father Irenaeus attributes this book to Luke. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, just about 20 years later as well, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, the Jewish historian, all point to Luke as the author of this book. In fact, in his ecclesiastical history, Eusebius wrote the following. He said, Luke, by race a native of Antioch, and by profession a physician, having associated mainly with Paul and having companion with the rest of the apostles closely, has left us examples of the healing of souls which he acquired from them in two inspired books, the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. So throughout their early church, all the way up through the Jewish historians and all, they point to Luke as the author of this book. So we can say with a, a, a strong amount of certainty that we have confidence that we know who wrote this book. It was Luke, the very man just described. Now we don't know a whole lot about Luke beyond uh, that. We know a few things about him that we understand from his writing and from the New Testament. We know that he was a Gentile. That shows up in the text that he was a Gentile. In fact, the only Gentile writer to write a New Testament book is Luke. Um, the one here. In, in Colossians chapter 4, he's listed in a list with all Gentiles, and we know from that that he was among them. I mentioned a moment ago that in Colossians 4, he's referred to as a physician. Uh, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, Paul writes. So he traveled with Paul, likely attending to Paul's physical needs. If you know much about the Apostle Paul, he had physical struggles and physical needs. He struggled with ailments and problems, and Luke accompanied him along portion of his missionary journeys, likely as his physician to help him when he was struggling in these, these various ways. And so this is the man Luke, the Gentile physician. We, we find that as we read Luke, the gospel, he's not an eyewitness. It becomes clear the things that he writes about are not things that he personally saw. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the 12 apostles. One of the criteria for being an apostle was you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke is not an eyewitness to these things. He's, an, he's a, if you will, a special investigator who investigates these things after the fact and reports the, re, the results of his investigation, as we'll see. So he's not an eyewitness. He traveled with Paul. Uh, he's possibly from the town of Troas. That's where the we sort of sections of, uh, of, the, of the book of Acts begin. So it gives us some idea that that's where he is from. There's another... Uh, an old document that used to be attached to the Gospel of Luke in some of the Latin uh, uh, manuscripts that have been found. It's called the Anti-Marcionite Prologue. You've probably never heard of it and you don't need to Google it, but it just suffice it to say it was something that was attached to the Gospel of Luke in some of the old Latin manuscripts. And in that, it, it tells us that he was a native of Antioch, that he wrote the Gospel while he was in Achaia, that he never married. Um, so I just give that to you fruit for thought. Maybe it's correct and accurate. Maybe it isn't. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly an early document that points in that direction, so it's worth thinking about. Now, Luke died at age 84 in Boeotia, so he lived to be an older man, and he had a long, a long life and a long ministry, and his legacy is recorded in these books, Luke and Acts. But, but who did he write to? That's important to understand the book of Luke. He wrote to someone we've already identified with the name Theophilus. We don't know much about really anything about Theophilus other than what we have in these two introductions. We, we, uh, uh, we, we know that he's referred to here as most excellent Theophilus, which is a, a title that's only sort of given to people who are very important. 
uh, perhaps a government official. We see Paul, Luke use this, this uh, phrase a couple of times, and it's always in reference to very important government officials. So it's possible, maybe even likely, that Theophilus was a, was a government official of some sort, but he was certainly a very important man, whoever he was, to gain that sort of a title. Uh, possibly even the patron who was funding Luke's work here. Uh, it's unclear what his spiritual status is. You can read uh, uh, commentaries and, and you'll just spin all over the place with people conjecturing uh, Luke's spiritual, Luke, excuse me, Theophilus' spiritual condition. It's unclear. It's, it's possible that one of two things is true. He's either a believer or an unbeliever, right? <laughs> that, that's good. That's, that's profound, isn't it? Uh, he's either a believer or he's an unbeliever. Like you couldn't figure that out on your own. Um, so in one case, if he's a believer, then Luke is instructing him here, grounding him in his faith. If he's an unbeliever who's just been taught some things of the gospel but hasn't fully embraced it here, then Luke is doing some evangelism with this man. In either case, uh, he's a person who's seeking answers, who has doubts, and who is still trying to sort things out in his faith. And so Luke is writing this to him and for him. Uh, whatever the case is, whether there's a, a believer who's struggling with doubts or an unbeliever who's trying to sort things out and decide whether to become a believer, one thing we know about him is he's a man who's struggling with doubt. He's a man who's struggling with doubt at some level in his life. Now, what's fascinating is in our culture, doubt is celebrated these days. It's, it's part of what comes with living uh, on the backside of, of postmodernism. Uh, doubt is, is celebrated in that context. In fact, if there's anything that, that postmodernism has left our culture with, it's left it with a celebration of doubt and, and an absolute fury toward any sort of certainty. What's in vogue is asking questions and having conversations and talking about possibilities and opportunities. But what's totally out of fashion these days in our culture is coming alongside and speaking about anything with any kind of level of certainty. You don't walk into American culture and say, this is true, and it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. You don't put something in front of people and say, you must believe this, this is right, and everything else is wrong. You'll get run out of the academic uh, arena very, very quickly these days with doing that sort of thing. And you won't be very popular in pop culture either, because doubt is celebrated and certainty is resisted. Dallas Willard Christian writer says this. He says, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. I like the way he puts it, and I think he's right in diagnosing the temperature of the culture. You can be as dumb as you want, but as long as you join in with the, the doubt and the questioning, questioning and the skepticism, you'll be welcomed right into the conversation. But step in with any level of certainty and see what happens. Doubt is celebrated. Certainty is resisted. Theophilus is not the kind of man who bought into that, nor is Luke. They are both men who care about certainty and do not like to live in that vacillating middle of doubt at all. And so Theophilus is a man who's trying to move from doubt to certainty in his spiritual walk with the Lord. And so that becomes then the purpose for Luke writing this gospel. He writes with that purpose in mind. If you were to read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that they're all different in various ways. Each gospel writer had a purpose in writing their gospel, and they had a purpose in writing it the way that they wrote it. None of the gospel writers could have possibly recorded for us every single thing Jesus did and said. Your Bible would not be this size in your hand. It would be like that size. And they could never make a pocket version of it. Um, that has nothing to do with why they wrote that. I just said that. But all of the gospel writers pick and choose what events in the life of Christ, Christ to record. All of them choose what words to record. They, they have rational human reasons for making their choices, but we understand, based on the integrity of the New Testament and what God has said about his word, that the Spirit of God is superintending their intentions and is causing them to record precisely what God wants recorded for all human history. So we have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who is driving Luke and the Gospel writers to write what he wants recorded for all of us, but Luke is also using his human mind and the circumstances around him and he's evaluating and he's choosing also what he wants to record because he thinks it fits the purpose, just as Matthew did and Mark did. 
And so when you look at, for instance, the birth narratives of Christ that you find in Luke and Matthew, you find that they're different. You find that Matthew focuses on different events than Luke. That Matthew focuses on things that would appeal primarily to a Jewish audience. Whereas Luke records events that would appeal primarily to a Gentile audience. And there's a reason for that, because that's the audience to which the authors were writing. Luke is here writing to a Gentile man to help him gain certainty in his faith. And so he's going to pick and choose the events in the life of Jesus and the words of the life of Jesus that will pierce the heart of a Gentile, that will help a Gentile wrestle through the things that would be particularly important to him, that he might be struggling with the most. And Matthew, on the other hand, is, is accomplishing similar things to a Jewish audience. And that's a, a pretty good sort of uh, generalization, but I think you get the point. They all have a purpose in their writing. So we shouldn't expect him to write the exact same things and the purpose is determined in various ways by the Spirit of God moving within them and driving them, but also by the circumstances into which they write. And so Luke, writing to Theophilus in order to help him deal with his doubts, is going to shape his content uh, based on that. And he's going to record things that, that are helping him advance the ball in that regard. And he's going to leave out things that are spurious that wouldn't be helpful to Theophilus and beyond anybody else who was to read that in similar fashion. And so we see in that prologue, Luke says, here's why he's writing. He says, I, I wanted to, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That you might have certainty. You see, Theophilus has been taught some things. He and the broader audience, I'm convinced Luke also has a broader audience in mind. He's writing primarily to this man, but I think in his mind he's also writing to a much broader audience of people who are similar to, to Theophilus. He's a wise and smart man who understands that doubt is real and it's pervasive. And so he writes this, and he writes that Theophilus and any who read it might have certainty as they deal with their doubts. So that's Luke's purpose. That's the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is written to give certainty to people who are struggling with doubts in their faith. Primarily this man, Theophilus, and anyone who follows after him. It's written to help men and to help women anchor their faith in the certainty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's written to show them that their faith is rational and that their faith is reasonable, that it is in fact not blind, but it's very historical and it's very well documented and it makes sense to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe the gospel. Faith is still faith, and salvation still requires faith, for sure, but it's not blind faith. It's not ignorant faith. It's an informed faith, and that's what Luke is coming at with Theophilus. He wants to show this man who's wrestling with, in that vacillating middle between faith and unbelief, that what he's been taught is true, that it's sure, that it's certain, and that he can bank his life on it. And so in a sense, the Gospel of Luke is a, a treatise defending the truthfulness of Christianity. And so if we were to sort of summarize Luke's purpose, his purpose in writing this is to provide and produce a, an historically accurate, theologically sufficient gospel that's sort of directed toward instructing Gentile Christians and evangelizing Gentile unbelievers. So the key phrase is there, historically accurate. You're going to find Luke cares about being historically accurate. That's important in this gospel. But we're going to also find that he cares about being theologically significant. Luke is an historian and a great historian, but he's not only an historian. He's also a theologian. And so he cares about theological significance as well. And his goal is to build up doubting believers and to evangelize doubters who are wrestling with whether or not to receive Christ. And that's what he's writing for. That's his purpose. That's why the book was written. And everything that Luke records in this gospel that we will study is, is geared toward that end. So as we go through the book, keep that in the back of your mind. Why is Luke writing about this? Why does he say this rather than that? Why does he include this story and not that one? It's all about coming at doubt and Theophilus and then he will read it. So how does he go about doing this? Well, he gives us some clues in that prologue. He says a few things to us that, that are helpful to us. Um, we, we find that, that his method for sort of going about producing this book is, is, has a few characteristics. The first we see is careful investigation. Luke says early on that I'm carefully investigating these matters. Um, 
And that's what he does throughout the book. The, he, Luke is a careful investigator. He went about, he, again, he wasn't an eyewitness, so he goes about with Paul. And when they're traveling, he's questioning Paul, and he's listening to Paul, and he's asking Paul questions. And he has uh, uh, access to other, many other eyewitnesses to the, to the things that he writes about. And so he's interviewing people, and he's gathering information, and he's compiling evidence, and he's putting it together, and he's writing it and compiling it all in this one gospel to give to this man, Theophilus. He's doing a careful investigation to provide evidence on which Theophilus can anchor his faith. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, what is there moral or immoral about believing or not believing is a a set of statements. In other words, here's a question. Let me read it with a different inflection. What is there that's moral or immoral about believing or not believing a set of statements? A sane man accepts or rejects any statement, not because he wants or does not want to, but because the evidence seems to him good or bad. And, and that's, where, that's where Theophilus is. He's evaluating the evidence to decide whether he thinks it's good or bad, whether it's worth putting his faith in the anchorage of Jesus Christ. And so Luke is carefully investigating and trying to provide for him detailed and clear evidence of the gospel of Jesus and the truth of the ministry of Christ and his words. We find that one other thing in the prologue that tells us something about his method. It says he goes back to the beginning. He's telling us that, that, that there are those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered, that was delivered to us. And so Luke is going to have a span for the whole of human history. He's not talking to a Jewish audience like Matthew, as I mentioned. So he's not going to go back to Abraham and point to Abraham. Luke is going to zoom out, and he's going to point to us as Jesus Christ is not just a Savior for the Jews, but he's a Savior for the world. And he's going to go all the way back in his genealogy, not to Abraham, but to Adam. And he's going to show how Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. He's going to start from the beginning of human history and show Theophilus how from the beginning of human history until the day that he writes this book, God has been about writing a story of human salvation, the central figure of which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he's going to show him how his faith is anchored right in the flow of human history from the very beginning. And we're going to see that, that he cares about doing that very much. We're going to see him talk about specific people. He's going to mention Caesar Augustus. He's going to mention a man named Quirinius, who was a governor in Syria. He's going to talk about the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And he's going to go on with all of these sort of historical, uh, a clear historical sort of benchmarks, if you will. And, he, and he's doing that for a reason. He wants to show Theophilus that the story of Jesus and the, the ministry of Jesus and the words of Jesus is all couched in verifiable human history. It's not just a fanciful tale that he's made up, that people are asked to believe on, on, on just pure faith. Jesus, his actions and his words are a part of concrete history. And so Luke is going to care about that, and he goes back to the beginning, and he's going to show us historical markers along the way to make the case. Another thing that Luke does in his, in his method is he uses verifiable sources. He tells us he goes back to, to, to eyewitnesses. And, and, and the more we learn about the ancient world, the more we come to appreciate what Luke actually has done here and what a fine historian he actually is. One historian wrote this. He was an archaeologist. He said this, He said, wherever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment has been unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. So Luke is a great historian. He's not making up fairy tales and fabricated accounts. He's not exaggerating events in order to uh, sway people's minds. He's recording validated events well established by uh, human ancient history. And so in doing that, he's providing this man, Theophilus, with a rational basis for his faith. And he does that through verifying eyewitness sources and reporting it. And the last thing he tells us that he does here is he says, I'm setting out to to produce for you an orderly account. So Luke is wanting to, to, to not just do a hodgepodge of things that happened, but his account is orderly. There's an order to it. He's intentionally wrote it the way he's written it. Uh, and so we're going to find that. The word orderly here just means logical, not necessarily chronological. But Luke is going to be largely chronological. But you're going to find at times he does pull some things out of order. And when he does that, we'll stop and ask the question, why does he do that? He must have a reason. And he always does. 
But what's important as we look through Luke is to understand that while Luke is an able and fantastic historian, he's much more than a historian. He's not a passive historian who's just wanting to sort of put down just the facts and leave you to sort of do with it what you want. He's not just recording a biography of Jesus. He is not just an historian. What Luke is going to do is he's going to report the events to us, but he's also very concerned with interpreting those events. So he's going to become a theologian as well, as we've already mentioned. And he's not going to be content with just presenting the events and interpreting the events. He's going to try to persuade Theophilus and his readers as well to embrace them and to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke is writing history, and he cares about it being very historical, but he's also going to explain it to us through the lens of Christ. And he is going to try to persuade us all to surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus. So we could say Luke is, in a sense, an historian. He's a theologian, but he's also a pastor who's trying to persuade. And so this purpose is, if you will, really... uh, inspire sort of the inclusion of, of, of a lot of unique material because Luke has a really unique uh, purpose compared to some of the gospel writers. It's not going to surprise us to find that he talks about things that the others don't. Some of the things that we'll find as we study through the gospel of Luke that you don't find in any of the other gospels are some parables that you're well aware of. Who's ever read the parable of the prodigal son? You read that? You familiar with that one? It's in Luke. It's in Luke. He records that the Pharisee and the tax collector... I think I preached that one not too terribly long ago. Also only recorded in Luke. You heard the story of the Good Samaritan? You remember that one? Also unique to Luke. When we look at the birth narrative, there's going to be a lot of things that are unique to Luke that aren't found anywhere else. He's going to tell us about the birth of John the Baptist. He's going to record for us a song of Mary the Magnificat. He's going to record for us a a song from Zechariah. He's going to record for us a song by a man named Simeon uh, that's going to be fascinating to walk through. He's going to tell us about an announcement of the birth of Christ to shepherds. He's going to tell us the story of Jesus going to the temple as a young boy and disappearing from his parents on the journey, and they end up finding him in the temple instructing the rabbis. Do you remember that? Luke records that for us. We'll see all of that as we move through. We'll we'll read through and we'll run across a character by the name of Zacchaeus. You know Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man, right? You remember that guy? You sang that when you were a kid, didn't you? The wee little man, the wee little man. How would you like to go down in history as that? I mean, whoever wrote that song, they did for Zacchaeus a disservice, right? I mean, the poor man all he's known for is being wee, and that's terrible. But we get that because he climbed up a tree to see Jesus, so we assume he's a short guy, so there's hope for short people after all. And Zacchaeus is one, and Jesus saves him, but we're going to find that out because Luke records that for us. That's going to be important to understand why does Luke do that and the others don't. You may recall a story where Jesus heals a group of lepers, 10 of them in fact. They go away and they're cleansed and, and, and uh, do you remember how many of them come back with a heart of gratitude? Only one. It's Thanksgiving time just passed. We should have studied that, right? Gratitude. Luke records that story for us. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to a couple of men on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that story? And carries on a conversation recorded for us here in Luke's gospel. So there's going to be a lot of material we'll find in Luke that we don't see in the other gospels. So we'll give particular attention to, to those things as well because Luke has very clear reasons why he includes them. The book of Luke is the longest gospel if you go by verses. Um, and Luke is also the largest contributor to the New Testament, again, if you go by verses. Twenty. 2,157 verses written by Luke. More than Paul, more than John, more than anyone else. So really, just sort of wrap this introduction up by giving you a couple of the themes that are really important that I want you to look for as we walk through the gospel. The the main theme that I want you to pay attention to is obviously the the theme of salvation. Paul, I mean, I keep wanting to say Paul because he's in my head for some reason. Luke, 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 say it 10 times, you'll remember. Okay, Luke, Luke is gonna record for us how Jesus is the culmination of all of salvation history. And that theme weaves all the way through this book. It's a, the, the, salvation is a story that God has been weaving with humanity since the very beginning. And Jesus is the central figure in that. It all culminates in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of that. Zechariah in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, verse 68 and 69, he says this upon 
hearing of the birth of Christ, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus Christ is that horn of salvation that was promised in the Old Testament, now fulfilled in his birth, and subsequently his life and his death. Salvation is one of the most prominent themes in the book of Luke. The word salvation itself used four times in Luke. The word itself is not used in Matthew or Mark at all and only once in John. So Luke cares about salvation. He's talking about salvation. Both God the Father and the Lord Jesus are referred to as Savior in this book. Again, not Matthew and Mark don't use that terminology. John does only once. And when Jesus comes about defining his mission in this book, in chapter 19, verse 10, he says very succinctly this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save. Do you know the rest? That which was lost. So Jesus defines his own mission as a salvation mission, as a seek and save mission. He came to seek out people who were lost and to save them. And that's the theme that runs throughout the book. Jesus is on a mission and Luke wants that mission to be full central throughout his book. So he's going to majorly focus on presenting Jesus as the Savior of the world. But another thing that you'll notice in Luke is that he has a great concern for the lowly and outcast. If you've ever felt lowly, if you've ever felt like an outcast, you're going to be comforted because you're going to see Jesus as one who, though he is almighty God in human flesh, he cares about people that culture marginalizes. He cares about people who are brushed off to the side and given no attention. He has great concern for marginalized people. In his day, that looked like tax collectors, and it looked like women, and it looked like poor people, and it looked like Gentiles, and it looked like people who were sick and people who were disabled. It looked like people who were labeled by the religious culture sinners. And we're going to find that Jesus has great compassion and great care for such people. It's going to be a very strict contrast or stark contrast from the other religious leaders of his day who shunned people like that. And it's going to cause all sorts of conflict, as you can imagine, in his life and his ministry. I mean, we see it at the very beginning. Who are the first people that hear about the birth of the Savior as Luke records it? They are shepherds out in a field watching their flocks by night. You don't get much more lowly on the social ladder they're like the dirt underneath the ladder, the shepherds are. And yet, Luke goes to great care to show that God cares so much about people that low that he went to them first. We're going to find things like that. In contrast to, Matt, to Matthew, who tells us not about shepherds, but about magi, wealthy magi who come. You're going to find that Luke is incredibly opposed to the idea that somehow wealth and position reflect a good status before God. He's going to blow that out of the water. He's going to show that not only do wealth and status not prove anything about someone's relationship with God, they quite possibly are some of the largest barriers to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's going to give a focus to the poor. His salvation that he brings is inclusive of all people. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, high class, low, low class. It's open to anybody who'll come. Anybody who will listen to Jesus, believe, repent, and embrace him as Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter where they're from or what their social status is or what their intellectual level is or what their status in life is or what their background is. They can come and be saved. He's the Savior of the world. It doesn't matter if the culture hates you and marginalizes you and tells you you're a loser and that you're a nobody and that you're, you don't amount to anything. Jesus Christ says you amount to something. I died for you. Embrace me as your Lord and Savior. He's going to talk to us about tax collectors. We're going to see in chapter 5, he's going to go by a booth of a tax collector named Levi. And he's going to call him to be one of his followers, Matthew. In chapter 7, verse 29, we get this verse. Listen, when all the people heard this, and Luke puts this in, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Why does Luke say, and the tax collectors too? He wants to remind everybody that Jesus cares about tax collectors too. Do you see what Luke's doing? He's reminding him. It doesn't matter if you're lowly or an outcast. They listen too. And the message is for them too. And they can embrace this too. And they can be saved too. And of course, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, who was also rich. So he had two barriers. And Christ dines with him in his home. 
and he gets criticized for it. Another factor is women. You're going to find that Luke, ladies, mentions 13 women not featured in any of the other Gospels. That's a lot of women that he mentions that nobody else talks about. And Luke is going to record their names, at least for us. And that's a stark, again, contrast to the male order, sort of the male-oriented religious uh, sort of establishment of the day. He's going to show that, that Christ cares about women as well. He's not a misogynist. He loves people, whoever they are. And so we're going to find in the birth narrative, we're going to hear about Mary's perspective, and we're going to hear about Elizabeth's perspective, but we're not going to hear anything about Joseph's perspective. In chapter 7 uh, of Luke, we're going to run into a woman who's described as a woman, and she's described as a sinner. That's a pretty bad combination in the first century if you're a woman and a sinner. And she's both, and she's going to approach Jesus when he's dining at the table, and she's going to bow before him, and, and she's going to pull out an alabaster jar, and she's going to open it up, and she's going to wash his feet with her tears, and she's going to anoint his feet with oil, and she's going to wipe them off with her hair. And this dodgy religious establishment is going to say to him, don't you know who's touching you? If you were a godly man, you wouldn't dare let this woman near you, much less touch you. And Jesus is going to give them a clear instruction on who the gospel is really for through the life of this dear woman. In chapter 13, we run across a woman with a disabling spirit, so she's also a woman, and she's disabled. She's demon-possessed, and Jesus will heal her. He deals with the poor quite often. He's going to tell us a story about a rich man and a man named Lazarus, a poor beggar off the edge of his table, and he's going to tell us about heaven and hell. And you can guess which one ends up where. And Jesus is going to explain why. You can summarize all that by saying, Jesus cares about sinners of every stripe. Sinners' lives matter to Jesus. And we find that through the gospel all throughout. Chapter 5, verse 32. I've come not to call, excuse me, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance of every single stripe. And he's accused of it all the time. Chapter 15, verse 2, you got the Pharisees and the scribes are gathered together and they're gossiping and they're whispering about Jesus and they're criticizing him and they're saying to one another, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. What kind of filth does that? Jesus does that. That's who. Well, we're about out of time. So another theme we won't elaborate on this morning, we'll catch it as we go through the gospel, is this. We'll see a focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's going to talk to us about the Holy Spirit throughout in ways that the other gospel writers don't. But what you need to not miss as we move through this book is that there is a central figure in the book, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He towers over every page and over every chapter and over every single word. Luke shows us who Jesus is. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of God's salvation plan in all human history. He is the Savior of the world who dies for sinners. That is who he is. He came to die for sinners. He came to, to form a people of God who are renewed by his spirit, who will take his gospel and take it out to anyone in the whole world who listen. He's going to show us what Jesus did. He's going to show us that, that Christ is the, the way to God that the way to the Father is through the Lord Jesus Christ in recognition of our need and turning to God in repentance and embracing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He's going he's to show us Jesus who overpowers nature, who casts out demons, who heals diseases, who raises a dead person, who forgives sins, who prepares his disciples and, and disciples them to take the gospel to the nation. He's going to show us a Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit. He's going to show us all of that about Jesus, and Jesus saturates the pages of the gospel. It's not just history. It's history of Jesus. It's not just theology for theology's sake, but it's the theology of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the goal is not that you understand theology better in and of itself, and it's not that you understand history better in and of itself. It's that in understanding the history and in understanding the theology of it, you'll be able to anchor your faith in the certainty of the Lord Jesus Christ who he is and what he's done. That's the goal. Luke is going to challenge you and he's going to challenge me to respond to Jesus. He's going to show us a Jesus who's, mag who's magnificent and glorious, who cannot, absolutely cannot be ignored, who demands a response. He's not a, a great teacher to be admired. 
He's not a great moral example for us to follow in and of itself. He's none other than the Son of God who's come to seek and to save the lost. And the only question is, will you bow before him? Confess your sin and embrace him. Will you repent and turn to him? If you've already done that, you're going to be challenged by, by, by Luke here to take up your cross daily and follow after him. You're going to be challenged to live out the ethical demands of the gospel that you've embraced. So there's something here for everybody. This gospel is exciting and it's good. And it's going to be a, a fun journey. But every step along the way, we see Jesus. He opens the gospel to everyone because he's the Lord of all things. And I pray that as we make our way through this in the weeks and months ahead, I pray that through it all, you'll see Jesus like you've never seen him before. That he will tower not just over the gospel, but he will tower over your heart and over your life and over your mind and over your thoughts and over your actions. I pray that you'll love him like you've never loved him before. I pray that you'll walk away week after week serving him like you've never served him before. We come to this book to hear from Luke, but we come to this book to see Jesus Christ. What better thing could we spend our time doing? The answer to that is nothing, right? Nothing. So let's pray together as we close that God would give us wisdom, that he would give us insight, that he would give us excitement as we gaze upon his son in detail in the weeks ahead. Lord, Jesus, you are glorious. And we as your people have gathered in your place today and we've sung your praise and we've prayed and we've thought about you. But as we anticipate this study, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit to see us, to see you like we've never seen you before. That you would draw us like a magnet to yourself. That our hearts would explode with joy and thanksgiving at who you are and what you've done for us. That our hearts and our lives will be driven to serve you like we've never served you before. And that you would be glorified among us as we study. And that you'd be glorified in us as believers. You have to do the work. We'll open your word and study. Give us open hearts. Give us open minds. Speak to us. Teach us. Lord Jesus, we need you more than ever. We pray these things in your holy name.